0: So as I was preparing these past two weeks, and thank you for your prayers for me, it was, I was loath to not be able to preach last week, but by God's grace, uh, he has restored me and I'm here to preach this morning. But thank you so much for your prayers, both for me in my ill health and also for this message. As preachers, how much we need your prayers. We need your prayers that God would speak through us. And as I was preparing these past few weeks, I happened across uh, some different churches' sermon series. And you may have seen such as this, as churches advertise what is preached during the preaching time, the preaching slot for God's Word in their services. And two struck me most clearly, and they grieved me. And I'll share a little bit of them. The first was that the content in this particular assembly of the preaching of God's Word was movies. Each week was a different recent film, and that was the actual content of the preaching time. The second was merely a sporting phrase. And that was all. And what was notably absent was the Word of God. And the reason why it grieved me and the reason I share it is what we need is God's Word. We don't need more entertainment. You can look everywhere in this world for entertainment. You've surely seen the commercials where entertainment is to be in every aspect of life, as if we can't live without entertainment. But friends and brothers and sisters, what we need is the Word of God. God himself, the God of this universe, has revealed himself through his Word. His Word is truth, and we need truth. This word is powerful, it is living, it is powerful to save. It gives life to those that are spiritually dead. This is the word of God and this is what we need. We need to go through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book so that we would have the whole counsel of God. That is why we're in God's word this morning and that is it precisely what we need. We need God's word. It needs to be uncaged, it needs to be unleashed To us, we need to be exposed to it and changed by it. This is how God has chosen to reveal himself. And so we come to it now. So turn with me to our passage. This is Acts chapter 13. Starting at verse 42 and going through to verse 52, to the end of the chapter. So turn with me in your Bibles to our text. So beginning at verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them. And went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy. And with the Holy Spirit. So the plan for this morning is this. As we look at this text. That we would first look at the events. The episode. This is an historical account. This actually happened. Following that. We will look at the principles that this episode teaches. And then lastly, look at how these principles apply to us today. That's the plan of action for this morning. But before we go any further, some words of context are necessary. You well have noticed that in verse 42, we have, as they went out. This is not the beginning of this chapter. What has directly preceded it is the preaching of God's word. You'll remember from two weeks ago, When Ryan preached clearly the gospel by preaching Paul, who was preaching the gospel. So, as a reminder, do go and look up on the website. Do it this afternoon. It will bless you and edify you. Ryan's message that the Lord spoke through him on Paul's preaching. Because that is what is directly before our text. Our text is the response or responses to Paul's preaching. So, a word on context. Where are we? Well, this is Paul and Barnabas on their first Missionary journey. They are missionaries in the sense of to the unreached people. They're in the city of Pisidian Antioch. This is one of many Antiochs. It's not the Antioch church that they were sent out from. They're in a different city. This is a Roman city, it's a Roman colony. But it also has a Jewish community within it. And so there is a synagogue, the place of religious worship for Jewish people. And so in this synagogue, Paul and Barnabas have gone there They've entered this city, they've gone to the synagogue and as Jews, not only Jews, Paul in fact is a trained rabbi, a teacher of high standing, of great renown. He has been trained by Gamaliel, one of the most preeminent rabbis of the day. So Paul and Barnabas have gone in, they've sat down and as was customary, the word has been read, the Old Testament, and then again, this was normal in the synagogue, it was an opportunity for anyone to stand up and give an exposition, a word, a word of encouragement. So Paul and Barnabas have been asked, they've been invited, brothers, if you have a word, come up and speak it to us. And so Paul has gone and he has preached the good news of Jesus, specifically by way of reminder. He has preached that Jesus is God's promised savior. He fulfills all of the Old Testament prophecies of God. And more than that, if you believe in Him, your sins will be forgiven. You will be freed from the slavery of sin that the law could not free you from. And finally, and most wonderfully, if you believe in Jesus because of His cross and His resurrection, your sins have been paid, you've received the righteousness of God in Christ, you are thus declared righteous by God. Through the works of the Lord, no one can be declared righteous, but by faith in Christ, he says, the Savior of God, you can be declared righteous by God himself. How wonderful is this good news. And that's what Paul has preached, and that comes just before what we've seen. So now let's look at the episode. Look with me, verse 42. We're going to go through and see the movement of the events that happen. There will be positive reactions, specifically of faith, there would also be negative reactions of rejection and opposition to the gospel. So in verse 42, we see first a generally positive reaction. Look there. As they went out, that is the people in the synagogue, I should also, we should also note here that the audience of the synagogue contained three different groups, or two, but three, we'll go with three. The first is ethnic Jews, those who were Jewish people. The second is those who were full converts to Judaism. That is, the people who were not ethnically Jewish, but who worshiped the God of the Old Testament, the God of Israel, and kept all of the law. They were grafted into the community of the Jewish people. Fully, they were as part of it, within it. The other group is God-fearers. We've seen these already. We've seen one of these such people, Cornelius. These are people who are not ethnically Jewish, But they do worship the God of the Old Testament. However, they are not full converts. They don't keep all of the law. In fact, they have not been circumcised. So they are not within the community of faith, but they would have been in the synagogue, there to hear the Old Testament read. This was the audience. So of this audience, we have a generally positive reaction. Look in verse uh, verse 42. The people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. They were intrigued. They were interested. They wanted to hear more. But that doesn't mean that they had believed. They hadn't. This overall group had been interested, intrigued. They wanted more, but they wanted more in a week's time on the next Sabbath. But in verse 43, we see a much more specific, positive reaction. This is the reaction of faith and salvation. Of that group, the overall audience, You will see that after the synagogue meeting had broken up, many Jews and devout converts, so among the main group, many of them, this is a large group, but it's a subgroup, who were Jews and those who were full converts, followed Paul and Barnabas. Have you seen pictures on the news of celebrities coming into airports? How they're mobbed and people are clamoring after them? Picture something like that, but there's a distinct difference. Those who follow after Paul and Barnabas, it's not them that they want. It's not them that they're clamoring after, like celebrities. What they want more of, what they must have more of, is the gospel. It's the message. They have trusted in Jesus, and so they can't wait. Next Sabbath is too long. They cannot wait any longer. They must have more of the gospel. And so as they follow Paul and Barnabas, this is an interesting scene, who are going back to their place of lodging, this crowd follows them and as they go Paul and Barnabas continue speaking with them likely preaching more of the gospel and explaining it, the full significance of Jesus as savior why are they so intrigued why do they must they have more of the gospel because they've believed in the gospel they have believed in Jesus Christ and been declared righteous see how what Paul and Barnabas says to them says to them at the end They urge them, the end of 43, to continue in the grace of God. You can't continue in something if you aren't already in it. They are in the grace of God. They've been saved by grace through faith from the preaching of God's word by Paul. That's what's happened. This is salvation for this group. And it's a large group that was there in the synagogue. Turning now to a week later, You'll see that this is now the next Sabbath. We fast forward one week. Verse 44. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. This is not hyperbole. We should picture here several thousand people. There's debate about whether this would be in the synagogue, as it was the previous week, or in an open area of which there were many in the city that could have accommodated such a crowd. But either way, the whole city, you notice that, it's not just those who were in the synagogue. It's not just Jews and converts and God-fearers. It includes Gentiles, that is, people who are not ethnically Jewish and don't currently worship the God of Israel. The whole city almost comes out to hear the word of the Lord. What a reaction, a positive reaction from this Roman city. So they come out to hear the word of of the Lord but then a negative reaction look in verse 45 but when the Jews this is the Jewish leaders and those under their influence when they see the crowds they are filled with jealousy and more so than that they begin to contradict what was spoken by Paul reviling him this is surely a negative reaction a rejection of the gospel and an opposition to the gospel Why are they jealous? Well, surely it is because of the crowds, yes. But it's not only that. They're not just jealous of the apparent success of the gospel. They also surely are against the message of the gospel. We've seen this already with the leaders of the the Jews in Jerusalem. How they have persecuted and been angry at the apostles who have preached the word. They disagree with the word. It makes them angry and upset to hear that Jesus is Lord and Savior. fully disagree with it, and thus they oppose it. But there's also a social aspect here. Not only do they contradict the message and revile Paul, they also have a lot to lose. So socially speaking, socially and politically, the Jews had a lot of privilege. The Jewish leaders with the Romans had a lot of freedoms and privileges, and they don't want to lose these such privileges. Why would they potentially lose them? Well, if this message of Jesus, who, remember, was executed by the Romans, if this message of this crucified man keeps going out and people believe in it, it's not going to look very good for them, is it? They stand to lose all of their privilege, and so that is another aspect of why they oppose the gospel, and they oppose the gospel messengers. They also revile Paul. That is, they slander him, they insult him, They defame his character and his name. And likely here, not only Paul, Jesus himself. They likely here run Jesus down, stress that he is a man who was cursed and executed, and not the Savior of the world, not fully man and fully God, etc., etc. So they are jealous and they oppose, they contradict the message of the gospel, and they revile Paul, they slander him publicly. And now a turn, a turn in our text. Paul and Barnabas speak out. They speak out fearlessly, boldly. Look at this in verse 46. And they say, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. What Paul and Barnabas are recognizing here is that the promises of God were given to the people of Israel first. And so it is appropriate and it is right that the fulfillment of all these promises, the good news of Jesus Christ, would be first proclaimed to them. And so they have done so. And this will be the pattern. And it will be the pattern after this text. When they go to a city that has a synagogue, they first go to the synagogue and preach about Jesus. Once rejected, they will turn then to the Gentiles and preach to all people who will give them an ear. But first, it is right that they have gone to the Jews, to the nation of Israel, those who were given the promises to say they're fulfilled. Jesus says, come, God's Savior is here. So after that, they go on to say, since you thrust aside, that is the word of God, the gospel, and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Here we have clearly, human responsibility. They are saying that they have thrust it aside. You have rejected the gospel. You have pushed it away. You've said no to the savior. You've said no to God's rescuer and redeemer. You've thrust it aside and to do so, they say, is to consider oneself unworthy of eternal life. Unworthy of the salvation and the grace of God and the implication here, the other side, is that to consider oneself unworthy of eternal life and salvation. Means that you will only face the just judgment for your sins. You've thrust aside God's rescue. You've thrust aside Jesus and his cross and his blood that was shed that could take all of your sins and grant you forgiveness. You've thrust it aside, and thus you will stand before a holy God and face judgment. That's what they say. Surely they are unwittingly considering themselves unworthy, but it is true nevertheless that for all who reject the gospel, that is how you are considering yourself. And so they say, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And it may appear at first glance that that's the reason they're going to the nations, to the Gentiles. But it is not. The point here is that the rejection of the Jews has created the circumstance to turn to the nations. But look in verse 47. Paul and Barnabas will give the very reason the motivation for their turn. And it is that God has commanded them to do this. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Here they're quoting from Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. And in Isaiah, in the text, God describes this figure, his servant, who will restore Israel. And more than that, he will be as a light to the Gentiles so that God's salvation will go to the ends of the earth. Now we know from Luke's gospel chapter 2 verse 32 that Jesus is the one who does this role. He fulfills the role of the servant who brings salvation and the light of salvation to all the nations so that God's salvation spreads throughout all of the earth. We know this because in Luke 2:32 Simeon The elderly man of God has been told he will see God's salvation, God's Christ, his Messiah and Savior. And before, he won't die until he sees him. And when he holds the infant Jesus in his arms, he will declare that he has seen the salvation of God. And more than that, he will describe Jesus as a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory for your people Israel. Did you catch that? Jesus is described by Luke through the words of Simeon, as a light for revelation to the Gentiles. So surely Jesus fulfills the role of the servant. But Paul and Barnabas here say that they have been commanded. So it is that the followers of Jesus have been given also the role of the servant. It's different. They are to carry the light, the message of the gospel, and proclaim it to people. That is their role. So thus they say they've been commanded, they've been told by God to do this. And so this is the reason they've turned to the Gentiles. The rejection of the Jews has only created the circumstance for the turn, but the reason is that it has always been God's plan to save and redeem a people from among all the nations. Do you see that? It has always been God's plan, and thus in fulfillment of it, God's servants, followers of Jesus, fulfill this role. And take the gospel to the Gentiles. And then look at 49. We have a summary statement that the word continues to spread. It continues to go out throughout the region. The word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. This is what's in view here is that as people have got saved, they've shared the gospel. And as other people have heard the gospel and become Christians, trusted in Jesus, they have shared the gospel. And it is multiplying out throughout the whole region. How wonderful to see the spread of the gospel. And then as we draw to the end of our account, we see that the Jewish leaders are not done yet. They are, in verse 50, they will go on and have incite, that is to speak ill of the disciples of Paul and Barnabas and their message, and incite persecution, an actual program of persecution. They do this by going to the women of high standing. We don't know for sure, but it could well be that these women were benefactors of the synagogue. They were actually God-fearers, and so they, the leaders could speak to them and influence them. And so they incite them, the men of high standing, the leading men in the city, is, this is the Roman officials, could well be the husbands of these women, and thus, incited by the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, the city elites and officials persecute Paul and Barnabas in verse 50. They stir up persecution and persecute them and drive them out of their district. Drive out is probably not as strong as we should translate this. They were expelled. They were thrust out violently, likely beaten and thrown out both of the city and of all of its boundaries. They are kicked out with force. That's what happens to Paul and Barnabas, the messengers of the gospel. Again, rejection. Again, opposition. And the last two verses, we see the reaction of the disciples to all of this. Firstly, in verse 51, they shake the dust off their feet against those that have just thrown them out. This symbolizes, and was told they were told to do this by Jesus himself, this act of shaking off the dust symbolizes that they leave behind defilement, uncleanness, which is that those who have rejected the gospel are still in their sins. And secondly, and importantly, they shake the dust off their feet against those that have just rejected the gospel and kicked them out. That is to say, they are stressing that they are responsible for rejecting the gospel. They are responsible for the preaching of the gospel in this place by these two disciples that has ended. And so they move on to the next city in this missionary journey, to Iconium and that's where we'll see Lord willing next week that they are. So in the light of this persecution what would we expect them to be? Upset? Fearful? Have a look. Verse 52, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. We've seen already the concept of being filled with the Spirit in Acts is subsequent to salvation, it is to have a deepened sense of the presence and power of God that actually empowers one and leads to bold preaching of the gospel. So Paul and Barnabas here, rather than being upset, have great joy that has come from being filled with the Spirit. The Spirit's work in them, their deep sense of God's power and His goodness and His wonderfulness, His very presence leads them to joy, not doubt, not fear, and certainly, doesn't stop them from going on and preaching the gospel. They go on to Iconium with joy, beaten as they are with joy from the work of the Holy Spirit. That is our text. So now, let's move to principles. And what we see in terms of principles is this, that the preaching of the gospel leads to, first, inevitable gospel acceptance. That is to say... That when the gospel is preached, through the preaching of the gospel, some will believe. We've seen it in our text. We saw it in the first group, right in verse 43. We saw it again in 48. That the Gentiles believed, and importantly, we should add here, they didn't just believe that when they hear the gospel, the Gentiles begin rejoicing and glorifying, that is, honoring the word God of the Lord, the word of God. And then, this is very important, listen to the order. As many as were appointed, this is by God, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Not the other way around. It isn't that one believes and then is appointed. It is that if God has appointed one to eternal life, then you genuinely believe. You come to faith. And so, inevitably, from the preaching of the gospel, some will accept. Some will come to faith. Why? Well, because God is sovereign in salvation. Sadly, this is a, often a controversial truth, but it need not and ought not to be the case. It simply states this, that God, in his sovereignty, in his rule, his rules over all that he has made, the whole universe, he is sovereign in salvation so that if you come to faith, it is because God has appointed that you would. He has chosen you in him before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, 4 says. We have been chosen, all who come to faith, in Christ, to come to faith. The word appointed here is stressing God's making and moving us to faith, him bringing us to faith. It stresses that God is sovereign in salvation. And this is why this is the grounds and the the evidence, or if you will, the reason that we come to faith, because God has chosen us to do so. This is clear in our text in verse 48, as well as in verse 43, and Jesus in John 10 will actually use a beautiful picture, a picture of sheep farming. You may not think that is a beautiful picture, but let me assure you, it most certainly is. And it's different, we need to add a a bit of context here. Sheep farming in the West today, we move sheep, and oh, the the farmers do, not that I do, uh, By dogs. We drive them, we have sheep dogs that move them to where they need to go, keep them safe, bring them to safe pasture. In Jesus' day, sheep farming was very different. The shepherd would call his sheep. His sheep, Jesus says in John 10, Jesus says, my sheep, my people, they know my voice. They know the voice of the shepherd, and if they then believe, it is because they are my sheep. He says to the, the, those who have rejected him and don't believe, you don't believe because you aren't my sheep. You don't know my voice, and I don't know you. In fact, the shepherds would often stand around a communal pen in the first century, and each would call at times, and their own sheep would come to them. Look at, think of that picture. They would come to them, they would gather around their shepherd, they would know his voice, Jesus is the good shepherd, the noble shepherd, he says in John 10, who lays his life down for his sheep. But you see that those who are Jesus's, those who he has chosen before the foundation of the world, hear the voice of Jesus and respond in faith and are saved. That is the point. Indeed, it is also that God has ordained not only the ends, the salvation for the lost, his lost sheep, He's also ordained the means. That is, his pre- people preaching the gospel. How does one come to faith? If not, oh, not even if not, one comes to faith, Romans ten seventeen says, by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. God has ordained the means by which his people will believe, the preaching of his word. And he calls his people to do that and to preach it. This is a wonderful doctrine that God is sovereign in salvation, And thus, inevitably, people will believe when the gospel is preached. I heard just recently that not many weeks ago, a lady came to this church, sat where you were sitting this morning. She heard Ryan preach God's word and the gospel, the good news of the Savior Jesus, and salvation for all who will believe. And she believed. She trusted in Jesus. It's happening here. It's happening amongst us. Praise God that Inevitably, he will draw to himself men, women, and children who will believe genuinely his lost people, his lost sheep, and he saves them. His blood has been shed for them, and they are his. He's risen again to give them new life. This is for all who will believe. You see the sureness of salvation because God is sovereign in salvation. The second point is this. That through the preaching of God's word, there will be inevitable gospel rejection. Inevitable gospel rejection. We could add here, and opposition. We've seen this clearly in our text, haven't we? That the Jewish leaders have utterly rejected the gospel. They've contradicted, opposed the message, persecuted those who bought it. Indeed, there will be persecution. And do you remember that that verse, that phrase... In verse 46, look at it again. Paul and Barnabas, Since you thrust it aside, the gospel and Jesus, and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. See the stress? Human responsibility this is called, and this is a truth that stands side by side with the truth of God's sovereignty and salvation. Now, we cannot and we're not given to be able to reconcile them according to human logic. And, need, and we ought not to do that, we need not do that. What we are called to do is to affirm what God has told us in His Word. John Calvin makes this point abundantly clear in his Institutes. We aren't to speculate. We aren't to try and ask questions of things God has not given us answers to. Instead, we are to affirm what God has said, the truth of God's Word. We know that God is sovereign. We know that if one believes, it is because God has appointed for you to believe, but we also know that God holds us all responsible for, for, to turn to him and thus if we don't for our sin. Human responsibility and God's sovereignty, they stand side by side, neither one casting any doubt on the truthfulness of the other. And as Calvin says, we affirm the truth of God, we affirm what scripture says, we affirm what God has said. Jesus himself will say this in John chapter 6, Verse 37 to 40, let me read it. Listen and listen carefully for human responsibility and God's sovereignty. Jesus says this, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. But raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You see? Human responsibility, whoever comes to me, that all who come and believe will be saved. But also God's sovereignty, all that the Father gives to me will come. Jesus affirms both and so should we. This is a glorious, two glorious truths that scripture teaches. But if this morning you don't know him, if you are sitting here and by God's grace you've walked through that door, then friend let me tell you this, scripture tells us, God tells us that from birth we are rebels against God. That isn't some slight problem, it is the most severe problem. And to thrust aside the gospel is to consider oneself unworthy of eternal life. And so, you will only face God's judgment. The Bible does, is not light about this, neither is Jesus. And the common term used is hell. That is separation from God for all eternity. From all that is good, the source of goodness, God himself. And instead, the picture in Revelation and elsewhere is of a lake of fire that burns forever forever but doesn't consume. This is eternal conscious torment. This is your state. This is what you are going to and your destination if you don't believe in Jesus. Sins will be dealt with one of two ways, ultimately. Either you will stand before God and be responsible for all of your sin. The wrath, the judgment of God will remain on you and you will stand before him and thus face sin just judgment or your sins have been taken and paid the punishment for them the righteous punishment and wrath of God has been poured out on Jesus God and man and so for all who believe your sins have been paid and are dealt with and so you will come before the fullness of the presence of God and thus you have been and will be declared righteous on account of Christ friend Please don't leave this place without talking to someone. There'll be people up the front and just others here who love the Lord. Talk to them. Turn to the Savior. Fly to the Savior. Cling to Him in faith and know that He will never, ever cast out any who come to Him in repentance and faith. Turn from your sin and believe in Jesus and be saved. And we urge you to do that. The Puritan John Owen says it this way. So listen to his words. I think these are wonderful. And he says this to you, unbeliever, today. That in the declaration and preaching of God's word, Jesus Christ says to sinners, Look unto me and be saved. Come unto me and I will ease you of all sins, sorrows, fears, burdens, and give rest to your souls. Come, I entreat you. Lay aside all procrastinations. All delays, put me off no more. Eternity lies at the door. Do not so hate me as you will rather perish than accept deliverance by me. Jesus beckons you to come and believe and be saved by his grace. Do so, I urge you, today. And then lastly, in terms of our main principles, and this is a wonderful principle, that through the preaching of the gospel, There will be inevitable gospel advance. Nothing can stop it. This is an unstoppable, unshakable mission of God that the gospel will advance. It has advanced in our text to Gentiles, and it has advanced outward from there to the whole region. This is happening today. And not only that, it's happened in the book of Acts. It's happened in history since. One example would be the American missionary of the 18th century, David Brainerd. You should write down his name, David Brainerd. Don't worry about the spelling, you'll find him. What a man of God he was, a man who had tremendous struggles. He really did have difficulties in his life, and yet he went to the native peoples in the northeast of America and he preached the gospel tirelessly, day in, day out, to the detriment of his own health, he preached. And in New Jersey, He preached to one of these such tribes and native peoples, and God brought about faith and salvation for many, many of them. You see the advance of the gospel? And a more pertinent update today, an example. The North African country of Eritrea is a country today where there is severe persecution for God's people. The government oppresses, throws in prison, tortures, even tortures to death, those that believe in Jesus. And yet, God's people there are preaching. They're proclaiming Jesus to others. People are getting saved and the house church, because they're not allowed an official church, is growing today in that land. The gospel advance is unstoppable. It is unstoppable. What a wonderful truth. We've seen it in our text, we've seen it in history, and it it continues today. Indeed, we are still in that phase of Acts 1-8 that the gospel is going out to the end of the earth. These are our principles. What about our applications? A couple of quick words of preliminary uh, information and notes. You may be thinking, well, that's great for Paul. Paul and Barnabas are missionaries in the capital M missionary sense. They are career missionaries sent out to another land to proclaim the gospel to those who are unreached, to whom the gospel has not yet got to. But that surely and clearly isn't all of us. So what is the church's mission? Well, very helpfully, Greg Gilbert, who you'll know from Clarus, and Kevin DeYoung have written a book, appropriately called What is the Church's Mission?, You can get it in the book nook. I urge you to do so. And they have very helpfully put together all of the New Testament evidence and data about the church's mission. That includes the complementary accounts of Jesus' commissioning of his disciples before he ascended. And they put it this way. Let me read you their definition because it is so, so biblically accurate. They say this, the mission of the church is to go into the world and make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and gathering these disciples into churches that they might worship the Lord and obey his commands now and in eternity to the glory of God the Father. Did you get that? That's the church's mission. They also give an even more helpful summary of that and they put it this way. The church's mission is to win people to Christ and build people up in Christ. So thus... Our mission is all of that. It is certainly more than just proclaiming the gospel, but it is by no means less than proclaiming the gospel. People will not come to faith and be one to Christ and believe in Jesus unless they hear the gospel, preach the good news of Jesus. That he has given us to do and this is our duty. This is a command, it's not an optional extra friend. It isn't just for those others to do. It is for all of us to do. To preach the gospel. To proclaim Jesus. Declare the good news of salvation in him through faith. That is what you are called to do, Christian. We've been given this duty, but it's also a tremendous, joyous privilege. A picture that may help you in terms of our identity as in this mission for all of us believers. In 2 Corinthians 5 18 to 20, Paul will say that we are ambassadors for Christ. Do you get that? We are ambassadors for Christ, that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. God, in fact, appeals to men, women, and children to come to faith through us. Think of how wonderful and how honored the position, especially in diplomacy, it is to be the ambassador of your king, of your sovereign. Think about what it is to be an ambassador of the King of Kings. The Lord of Lords. This is our identity. Friends, we must embrace it and share the gospel with the lost, with all that God has put in our lives and in our spheres of influence. What a privilege and what a duty it is to be on mission for Jesus. So, to our applications proper. First... We must know that God is the one who saves sinners and be comforted. Are you comforted by God's sovereignty and salvation? You should be. I can't even think how you could possibly share the gospel thinking that the weight of the person's salvation depends on you. It does not. We are relieved, we are released and freed to share the gospel knowing that God will save, knowing that he will draw We can't mess up salvation. We can't stop God from saving. But he does choose to use us. And he does call us to preach the gospel. What a privilege it is. What a comfort. Freed from paranoia and self-focus to share the gospel. Knowing that surely God will save all of his. This is the truth that should comfort us. Consider your friends and family, your colleagues, those who don't know the Lord. God can save them through you preaching the gospel. Surely he can, so trust him and preach. Secondly, in the face of persecution, and it does look different, we don't necessarily have violent persecution, though that can happen here. It may look here more like being slandered, being mocked, being reviled, as Paul was, if you preach the gospel. But we shouldn't be surprised by this, or downhearted, or upset, or fearful, and to stop us preaching, instead, We should have the joy of the Lord, knowing that Jesus told us this would happen. He said that we would be hated because the world hates him. He said that we are blessed when people revile us and speak all manner of evil to us or about us on account of him. Great is our reward in heaven. We shouldn't be surprised by persecution and slander, friends. No, Christian, our response to it is that it's obviously going to happen. And instead, our response should be, as Paul and Barnabas, to be filled with the Spirit, to have the joy of the Lord, knowing that he saves, and trusting in him to save, and so to preach. And how is it practically? I maybe would suggest to you some practical things from our text. If you want to be filled with God's Spirit, you want to have this sense, deepened sense, heightened sense of his presence and joy, then as Paul and Barnabas, be on mission, be sharing the gospel, Secondly, as you share the gospel, you're also to be in God's word. You see how they know God's word? You see how Stephen, as he preached, knew God's word intimately. Be in the word, be on mission, preaching the gospel to all. And lastly, and often overlooked, do so as part of a team. Paul partners with Barnabas. He will partner with others. We're not meant to just do this on our own. We are part of the people of God. Partner up and share the gospel. Partner up and be on mission and be filled with the Spirit and have the joy from being filled with the Spirit. And lastly, we're called to preach the gospel to all people from all backgrounds. Do you hear that? All people from all backgrounds. Friends, we must do this, especially it's stark the contrast with the world here. As Ryan alluded to, You don't need to look at the news for long to see that this world and the people in it are tearing one another apart due to their differences. They will hate one another and tear one another apart. Our call as Christians is to love our neighbor, to love someone who is completely different from us, and to go out, share the gospel so that they would be saved. It's the very opposite of what the world does that fights and hates due to difference, we look to those who are completely different from us, love them, know that they need the Savior, and share the gospel with them. That is what it is to love one's neighbor. It is actually hateful not to share the gospel with them. We're called to do so, empowered by God's Spirit, and so we should do so. What a wonderful privilege this identity, this mission is that God has given us. And then practically, what about those who you do have some commonality with? Maybe your background, might be your education, might be your family, your culture, your ethnicity. We need to ask and be open to the Spirit using our unique background to connect with people and share the gospel. The Spirit used it with Paul and Barnabas. They only got the chance to preach in the synagogue because he was a trained rabbi and they were Jewish. Your ethnicity your background, your education even, can be a means the Spirit uses to connect with people and thus share the gospel. So we need to pray for that and be open to it. Indeed, we should pray for opportunities. Pray that God would open a door for the gospel message and then that we should preach it and proclaim it as we ought. Paul himself asks for this prayer in Colossians chapter 4 and so should we. And so now to conclude... I should actually, before concluding, add this practical note. In terms of reaching out to those who are different from us, you have a wonderful opportunity that our church here already partners with. That is international students. Now, Josiah Balflower, our wonderful missions minister, wonderful is my addition. He may or may not agree with that. He would love nothing more than for you to come to him and get involved reach out, get to know an international person who is completely different from you, and share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. This isn't practical opportunity for you to do so. He would love to get your emails, have his inbox filled with you, coming to him and spending all of his time, maybe not all of it, but most of it, in talking how you can be involved and how you can practically share the gospel with people who are completely different to you. And so now, as we end I'd like to leave you with a picture, a picture of the sure end of the mission of God. This is going to happen, this is happening, and this is sure because God is sovereign. In Revelation chapter seven, we read this. This is the vision of John of the end of time. He says, after this I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. From all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Do you see? The nations, the redeemed people of God from all the nations, what a privilege to share the gospel. What a privilege to be an ambassador for Christ And I pray that we would be filled with his spirit to do so. Let me pray for us. Lord God, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for your truth. And Lord, I thank you for Jesus. For your grace to us in Christ. If it was not for Christ, we would be lost. And deserving of only your judgment, your wrath would have remained on us. But Lord, salvation is all of you. You get all the glory, and you will always get all the glory. Lord, you've saved us. Lord, you've come in the person of Christ and bled and died on a cross. You've gone through that utter agony so that you would cleanse us from sin. And you've risen again, given us eternal life, a new life in you. You've defeated sin and the power of sin. You've defeated death. It no longer has a sting for us. Lord God, thank you. Lord Jesus, thank you. I pray now that you would help us. You would fill us with your spirit. That you would have us in your word. That you would have us on your mission, joyfully, in spite of all persecution, praising you and preaching the goodness of God in Christ to all people. This you have given us to do. And you empower us through your spirit to do it. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.